Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to Bankery Christian Fellowship Church. Um, we are late for our late start, so apologies for that, but these are um, unusual times. Um, a warm welcome to this place, especially if you're visiting. Uh, my name is Duncan. I have the privilege of serving as pastor here, and it is my particular privilege to lead us in worship today. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 1 to 12, the contrast of wisdom and folly. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This, is, this also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Thank you. Here we've been working our way through the book of Ecclesiastes, and in fact, long before the events of this past week, this passage of Scripture was allocated to today. And I'm the kind of person who believes God is at work in those sorts of details. We need these verses they have a lot to say to us, some uncomfortable things to say to us, but a lot to say to us about the reality of death. I mean, death is almost literally on our doorstep today. And these verses say to us, be careful. Don't turn away too soon. Don't be quick to flee from the presence of death. Because there is something there that we must all learn. These verses in Ecclesiastes 7, they say to us that, that death holds a needed lesson if we have any ambition to walk the way of the wise. Ecclesiastes is not the easiest book of the Bible to get to grips with. But even though it's 3,000 years old and was written in ancient Israel, the themes it addresses are utterly timeless. If I can very quickly recap, this book is the record of one man who likes to be known as the preacher and his search for the meaning of life. And he concludes that life is vanity or meaningless. And that word vanity, it means vapor. 
So his conclusion is, life here is short, it is ungraspable, and when it's gone, it disappears without a trace. That's your life, and that's mine. And there is nothing that we can do to change that. And the preacher can be confident about that because he's tried everything to change that. He has tried every pleasure imaginable. It didn't matter if he worked hard, studied hard, partied hard. He couldn't add anything to the vapor that his life was. So he sees that life is short. He understands that the times and seasons of life are not in our control. And so his message to us is rather than fight against all of those limitations, he says embrace those limitations. Accept that this is how God has designed life to be. We were made to depend upon him, not depend on ourselves. And to see that everything God has given is to be received with grateful hearts and enjoyed in these short years that we live under the sun. And so the preacher has had some things to say about how we worship God, about how we relate to money and possessions. And as we come to chapter 7, the preacher's concern is that we walk the way of the wise. And this way of wisdom, it surprises us, I think. If I was to ask you what was the best day of your life so far? What was the best day of your life? For an awful lot of people, their answer would revolve around the birth of a child, wouldn't it? There's a glint in a father's eye as his mind goes back all those years to when he first set eyes on his daughter or his son. There are very few people who would say the best day of their lives was the death of a parent or the death of a grandparent. I mean, that would be shocking, wouldn't it? And so I think the words of the preacher in Ecclesiastes 7 shock us because he says, verse 1, the day of death is better than the day of birth. He says it's better to go to the house of mourning than it is to go to the house of feasting. The heart that is wise is in the house of mourning. The heart of fools is in the house of mirth or the house of, of, of joyfulness and delight. The preacher is not presenting some kind of perverted perspective on life where, where death is a more desirable thing than life. That's not what he's doing. He's telling us that the day of death is better than the day of birth because there is more for us to learn on the day of death. He says that the way of the wise is living in the light of death, living in the light of death. When a baby comes into the world, for all the joy of that moment, you are not yet able to tell anything about that child's story, are you? You are able to say, despite popular opinion, you're able to say pretty decisively whether it's male or female, but much beyond that, what can you say? The story has yet to be written. 
The day of death is the opposite. The day of death reveals everything. The whole story of life has been written and the final verdict comes in. That's the place where all life is heading. And the preacher says in verse 2, it is something that we all must lay to heart. The living must lay it to heart. It's, it's more common now in planning funerals for the body to be buried or cremated in advance of the funeral service. Ecclesiastes would say, well, hold on a second. That may be more slick logistically. That may make things easier on the day for people, but never forget how valuable it is for human beings to sit in the shadow of a coffin. I mean, often people cannot wait for a funeral service to end. The somber nature of proceedings is uncomfortable, something to be endured. But the preacher, believe it or not, is saying, attending a funeral might just save your life. If you're wise, that is, and take the great lesson that is there when you sit in the shadow of death. It screams out, all life ends this way. Even yours. So go and live in the light of that. The preacher's telling us that the life that is wisely lived is one that embraces how serious a thing life is. And how serious a thing death is for life. Now, it's not the same as saying, um, it's not the same as calling for people to live a somber or solemn life. But he is saying that you will live a life that carries the weightiness of the reality of death. He helps us to understand what he's saying. And he does that by showing us what the alternatives are. What is the alternative to living in the light of death? Well, it's what most people do. They, verse 2, they go to the house of feasting. Let's stay in the house of feasting and we'll never have to think about death. Instead of sorrow, he says in verse 3 and verse 6, we seek out laughter. Verse 5, we listen to the song of fools. And there is an English word that sums this up. And it's the word amusement. I mean, we use that word simply to refer to something that entertains us, right? But it literally means the absence of musing. A amusement. Musing to think deeply about something. Amusement is something that diverts us from serious thought. That's what Ecclesiastes is saying we do. We pursue the things that will distract us from serious thought. And we live in the midst of a pandemic of that kind of amusement. And I would say that it's no accident. Serious thought makes us uncomfortable. It can be painful, not because it's hard to do, but because it forces us to face up to the uncomfortable realities of life. It's far, far easier to spend our hours in mindless scrolling through social media 
benefiting from the algorithms that mean we can endlessly stream relevant YouTube videos. We can just indulge hour after hour of binge-worthy box sets. All of these things exist for our amusement. And it's producing light and flimsy lives that live in a world of non-reality. Whether that's a world of sports, a world of gaming, a world of science fiction, a world of just making light of everything. The preacher is telling us that this sort of life is vanity. It's the vapor that's here today, gone tomorrow and forever forgotten because it is escapism. It's a denial of reality. He says better than that escapist pursuit of amusement and laughter all the time is to be sobered by the reality of death. Because it's there and only there that you will learn that even the longest and most popular reign of a monarch must come to an end. And one day the final chapter of your life will be written. And what will people say of us? I must make sure to say this. Ecclesiastes is a book that says life is to be lived joyfully. To be lived joyfully. Taking pleasure in the gifts that God has given. And so the writer of Ecclesiastes says you should enjoy your food and your drink and your work and your family. These should be the deepest pleasures that you can find. So he is not calling for us to live the life of a depressive. Look at that understanding in verse 3. He says, sorrow is better than laughter for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. It's by really grasping that there is such a deep sorrow and sadness in life, namely death, in grasping that and living in light of that, life will be transformed into a joyous experience. Life will be appreciated for what it is, lived meaningfully for what it is, and the need to live wisely will be grasped. Friends, the reality of death is about so much more than what others might say at our funeral, more than what might be engraved on a stone about us. Death brings our short life to an end and ushers us into the presence of the one before whom we will give an account for that life. The New Testament builds on this and says very clearly that it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. No wonder we are so drawn towards amusement, because anyone who engages in serious thought about this prospect will have cause to fear. If I will give an account to God for my life, then I'm in trouble. Because even if there are some things that I might be proud of and want to emphasize, there's a whole lot of other things that I would be deeply ashamed of, things that deserve only God's wrath. I am a sinner. So are you. And this lesson will steer us to the way of the wise. So where does the preacher take us next? He says, if we take on board the rebuke of the wise, 
Verse 8, better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise. So this is a rebuke to us. He says, if we take on board that rebuke, living wisely in the light of death, then we will find that the way of wisdom avoids three foolish roads. The way of wisdom avoids three foolish roads. The first road is corruption. You see that in verse 7. We understand that even the wise can be corrupted. There's nothing, uh, and that there's nothing that will do that quite like the love of money. Being willing to bend the rules for money will corrupt even the wisest. The Lord Jesus told the parable of the sower. It's the story of the, the, the farmer goes out, he sows his seed, and the seed lands on different types of soil. The seed is received differently depending on where it lands. And he speaks of the seed that landed among thorns. He said, they are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Life is too short. Death is too sure for the wise to be diverted down the road of corruption by the deceitfulness of riches. We must not underestimate how deceitful riches can be. A small dishonesty that harms no one can be the defect in the pane of glass that eventually causes the whole thing to shatter. The great deceit of sin is that it persuades us to forget about God, to forget about the way of the wise, to forget about his claims on us. Now, the way of the wise will steer clear of the road to corruption. The second foolish road that the way of the wise protects us from is the road to impatience and vain anger. Impatience and vain anger. You see that in verses 8 and 9. Why is it that people are willing to watch the same movie or read the same book over and over again? Why do people at Christmas time watch It's a Wonderful Life? Why do they keep watching it? I mean, it gets pretty grim for George Bailey, doesn't it? It's, it's as sad as can be. But people endure all that time and time again because they know Apologies to the young, that at the end it all comes good. And this is the lesson that the wise learn. Look at that in verse 8. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. This may be one of the hardest learned lessons in life. I mean, have you ever thought about why it is we get impatient and angry with others? Almost always it's because they don't comply with what we want. We get impatient because we want to be in control of something and we're really irritated that we're not in control of something. Well, Ecclesiastes has been thorough in showing us that we're not in control of life and you were never designed to be in control of your life. All things are in God's control. So if we're impatient about some of those things, so you see this is what he's warning about, isn't it? The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Do not be quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. 
So we're impatient about uh, people, about circumstances. Then we're acting as if we are God. Who else would have the right to be impatient about things being out of our control? Now, if we learn the way of the wise, it keeps us from that road to impatience and vain anger. The third road that wisdom saves us from is related to this. It's the road of vain nostalgia. Listen to verse 10 again. And hear how often your voice and mine have uttered these words. Do not say, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Aye, the streets were a lot safer. The education system was a lot more rigorous. Children were far more polite. People looked out for their neighbors. Churches were full. Even the music was better. People dressed a lot better. You name it. People probably think it was better back then at some point. And I suppose, strictly speaking, Ecclesiastes wouldn't necessarily disagree with you that you might be right. But he's saying that this sort of hankering after the past is not the way of wisdom. Actually, it's vain nostalgia. And it's not just society in general. I think that's sometimes too easy an application here. Often it's our own lives, isn't it? Longing to go back to that place when we were happy. Longing to be back with that loved one who's gone. To get back to that level of fitness that I once had. To have again those opportunities that I spurned. Recognizing that we're, we're not happy with how things are now. And so the answer is to spend our time in the past. Wishing we could be there again. Hankering back for the good old days. The preacher is saying, whatever it is you're longing for today, you will not find it in the past. It's not there. The better place is not behind you. It's ahead of you. And he can say that confidently. Because actually, ahead of you is the only direction of travel there is. You don't get to go back. How often have you tried to go back? Think even about a small thing. Oh, I used to enjoy those sweets when I was a little boy. So we go and we try them again. And first of all, we think, I can't believe how small they are. And second, we think, I can't believe I enjoyed that. <laughs> Whenever you go back, it's whatever you were looking for is not there. You ever done a drive-by of your old family home? I have. And I'm struck every time I've done it that whatever I thought was there is not there anymore. The house is there, but everything is different. To spend life yearning for the past, stuck in the past, is to waste life. It's not the way of the wise. 
Nostalgia, which is my word, not the preacher's word, is literally what, something like homesickness. It's as if the preacher is saying, you have this homesickness within you and you're looking for the wrong home. Earlier in this book, he said, God has placed eternity in the heart of mankind. There is this inbuilt longing for the eternal, for God, for the place where he dwells. And these longings for the past, for some kind of better place that we once occupied, surely it's all related to that. We have this longing for the better place, but the preacher says you're looking the wrong direction. Look forward. Look to the end of the thing, not to the beginning. So how do we pull all these strands together? Earlier in this book, the preacher tested the full scope of learning and wisdom, and he found that even though he possessed wisdom beyond any of his peers, life was still a vapor. But he's able to see, and he shows us this here, that I mean, wisdom is better than foolishness, better to be wise than a fool. And he sets the stage for us to see the fullness of wisdom that we need. So in verses 11 and 12, where we finish, these qualities of wisdom are revealed. He says it's like an inheritance that passes down to humanity and benefits everyone. It provides protection, verse 12. Much like money can, break, can provide protection for people, but it has a distinct advantage over money. Look at where this ends. Wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Living in the light of death is to live in the light of the reality of judgment. Solomon would write in Proverbs that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and how right he is. To recognize our place before God is key to everything. God is pure and sinless and holy. I am impure and sinful and not holy. And we, each one of us, stand before him condemned. When you hear Ecclesiastes, like it does in verse 12, say that wisdom preserve. It's the life of him who has it. We will go wrong if we think the answer is just to become more wise. Yes, of course, be more wise than more foolish. But the wise life that God requires is not something that you will find in yourself. The book of Proverbs is an extended meditation on the subject of wisdom. I thoroughly recommend it to you. And in chapter 8, you have this remarkable scene where wisdom speaks to us. And wisdom says things like this. By me, kings reign. By me, princes rule. I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently will find me. Well, who is this wisdom that speaks? Well, wisdom keeps on speaking in Proverbs 8. And says, when the Lord established the heavens, I was there. When he assigned the sea its limit, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight. The one who was with God in the beginning, 
through whom God made everything. That is wisdom who speaks in Proverbs 8. And the mystery is solved for us as we read the New Testament, where John would introduce his gospel by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Bible's message is that this true wisdom is Jesus Christ himself, God's Son. And so if we think what kind of wise life would God require of us, well, it is the supremely wise life, right? And which one of us can look on our lives even so far, never mind what's to come, and say that we have lived that truly wise life before God, that we could stand before him, that we could drink in this lesson of death, and that it could somehow fill us with confidence to stand before God? No, the message of the Bible is that God's, God's Son, Jesus Christ, the embodiment of wisdom, He comes to be our wisdom before God. Let me read a passage that explains this. Um, The Apostle Paul wrote a letter to a church in a place called Corinth, and they were fighting with each other, and fighting about who was most gifted, uh, who followed the best preacher, these kind of things. And Paul writes the letter to try and dispel all of these things and say, this is not how God works. God's way of working is not by saying, oh, who's the best, who's the most prominent. Here's how he puts it in the first chapter of that letter. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord." You cannot begin onto this road, onto the way of the wise, unless you have first received the true wisdom that comes from God. And that wisdom doesn't look like anything that this world offers. That wisdom doesn't look like anything that you'll find in yourself. Here's what it looks like. The Son of God become a human being in all of that weakness and dying on a cross. There is God's wisdom. Now, you would never have come up with that. How weak. Something that people would trample upon, something people would spit upon to see, yet here is God's supreme wisdom, that his son would come and live the supremely wise life and give himself to death in the place of sinners like you and me. 
And when we receive him, we receive the one who has borne our sins away. And you can be sure of it. You can be sure of it. For on the third day, God raised him from dead. And so when we sit in the shadow of a coffin, even a really big coffin like we've stood in the shadow of today, Ecclesiastes says, don't rush away. This is where you will end up as well. And then what will be said? I pray that today for every one of us we can say, I am trusting in Jesus Christ who has become to me wisdom from God and he enables me then to walk the way of the wise. It's still very easy for us to fritter away our lives in amusement. But Jesus Christ enables us to live the wise life, walking the way of the wise. We sang the hymn, Rock of Ages. And that final verse is one that really brings us face to face with death, isn't it? While I draw this fleeting breath, when mine eyes shall close in death, when I soar to worlds unknown, see thee on thy judgment throne. It's as if Ecclesiastes had written these words for us. But then what? Then what? Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. This is the only place where the, where the wise can live. The only place where the wise can stand before God is in Jesus Christ. Are you trusting in him? Do you believe in him? Do you believe he's a savior for you, even you? Let's take a moment to pray. Father, we want to thank you for these words. Lord, these are words that we ordinarily would not choose to read. We thank you that you've brought them to us. And for many of us, these are uncomfortable reflections. We hate to admit that there's a possibility that our presence in this world could come to an end. But Father, we thank you for this timely lesson today. We pray, Father, that each one of us would be like the wise who learn much in the place of mourning, in the house of mourning. And Lord, that you would speak to us about just the brevity of life, the certainty of death, the certainty of standing before you, but Father, comfort us with the wonderful news that you've provided a Savior so that we can stand before you, not in our own wisdom and strength and merit, but in the wisdom and righteousness and merit of the Lord Jesus Christ, a Savior for sinners. Oh, Father, draw every heart to him, and particularly as we come to remember him in breaking bread and sharing wine together now. 
May Jesus be exalted in our hearts, we pray. In his name, amen. And now to the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being with us today.